It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I'm excited to be talking with my guest today. Joining me is Bill Stinnett. Bill is president and founder of Sales Excellence, Inc., a global training and consulting organization that helps companies of all sizes grow their client bases, increase revenues, and keep more profits. And he's also the author of two books, Selling Results, The Innovative System for Maximizing Sales by Helping Your Customers Achieve Their Business Goals, and secondly, Think Like Your Customer, A Winning Strategy to Maximize Sales by Understanding and Influencing How and Why Your Customers Buy. Nice long subtitles there. You make sure people know exactly what they're getting. Bill, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. Happy to be here, sir. Yeah, so take a minute and fill out that introduction. Uh, tell us how you got your start in sales, for instance. How I got my start in sales? Yeah. Yeah, interesting question. Um, so my dad was a professional sales guy, sold a lot of different things, including cars, mm-hmm. uh, for many, many years. And then he started uh, several businesses when I was small and so I really got to kind of watch firsthand what, what that was about and just naturally fell into learning uh, kind of from him. And I took my first retail sales job at 14, worked in a sporting goods store and switched over to corporate sales in my early 20s and been doing that for almost 30 years now. All right. So what were you selling when you were selling retail? So in retail, it was a sporting goods store. So and, uh, shoes, gloves? No, like fishing and hunting. Fishing and hunting. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Got it. And I was a I was a crazy avid fisherman and still am, although I don't get to go as much these days as I probably would like. But uh, yeah, just a natural place to work, right? When you are fanatical about hunting and fishing, to work in a sporting goods store is a pretty nice little job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you don't fish as much as you'd like to, but you're you're in Colorado, though, right? You know, it, yeah. Isn't that the funny thing? We've got small kids, and so I've spent spent a lot of time with them the last uh, seven or eight years, and so. You give out you have certain sacrifices that you make, but my hope is they get a little bit bigger. We'll be doing some fishing together. And so, when you started your corporate career, what were you selling? So I started selling uh, software to program uh, machine tools in like a manufacturing environment. Yeah. I'd, I'd taken a job right out of high school programming those kinds of machine tools. So then uh, it, it got it was a fairly obvious transition to start selling the software with which you program those tools. So uh, that was the first thing, and then it kind of progressed from there into engineering software and later into financials kind of software and ended up spending a career in ERP, Enterprise Resource mm-hmm. Planning, and then started Sales Excellence in 2001. Oh, 2001. Okay. So what was the impetus for starting your own business? Yeah, another fun question, and, and I enjoy a- answering these. I don't know if anybody else gets his kick out of these stories, but it's fun to relive them. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. People, I think, uh, get inspired by the journey of, of okay. our guests. Well, hopefully this helps then. Um, so the thing was for me is uh, I, I was working for a, a large software company at the time in the late 90s, and uh, they sent about 150 of us, I think, from all over the country to a uh, big, I guess it was about a three-day training course down in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, can, you name, good. can you name this company? The company that I worked for? Yeah. Yeah, the company I worked for was called J.D. Edwards, and sure. anybody in technology remembers them probably. Absolutely. They're actually part of, uh, part of Oracle now. Right. But I was doing that, and so they sent us to this training session, and it was good. I was really high, high quality, and I liked the instructors and so forth, but I, I couldn't help but just think every minute, 
boy, I could, I think I could do better than that. You know, I could put together a better, a better model than that. I could probably provide a better sales tool than that. So I just really got the vision at that uh, meeting thinking, wow, this is something I could probably do. And so a couple of years later, I told him I would, I quit and uh, started my own thing. So what, what did you see in that training that was, that was missing that you were going to bring to the table? Yeah. Well, I, I quite honestly, at, at the time, um, I was selling really big ticket uh, solutions, million dollar plus kinds of solutions to pretty large companies. And in that particular training, although it was good, it was really geared toward, a, let's say, a more simplistic kind of a sales model. And so I thought probably there is demand out there for how to sell to the Fortune 1000 and how to sell them a million dollars worth of something. And so, uh, and I was right. That was been quite a call for this uh, really complex sales kind of methodology and strategy, which we've uh, specialized in now for uh, 15, 16 years. So, briefly, take us through that methodology. How did that differ from what uh, others were training at that time? Yeah. So that's a, another great question. Um, when I started, I, I already, there were already a half a dozen or so really, really well established um, sales training organizations, and probably hundreds also that. We're not quite so big and successful. But I first decided I wasn't going to try to replace or displace anybody's methodology necessarily. So I started putting together specialty programs. So we did a program on prospecting that got pretty popular, um, another one on negotiation skills. And uh, then I started uh, teaching one specific on how to sell to C-level executives, which is what my background was was pretty involved in. And so that really became, I think, the flagship for our company. And so... Uh, over time, we did finally end up developing a complete methodology simply because a number of our clients said, hey, we'd like to have help with more than just these specialty programs. And so mm-hmm. kind of grew from there. But uh, I will say this, that there are similarities probably in every good methodology program out there. As I always tell people, if you get two people trying to describe the truth, if they're being truthful, then they're going to be very similar descriptions. And so... I'd like to think that ours is not that much different than others, but there are a few wrinkles that make it unique. So give us an idea of what some of those unique things are, your unique perspective. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that. So one of the things that I, I believe strongly in is the, the importance of salespeople being more diagnostic in nature. And I won't, won't say that this is a brand new idea, like nobody else ever thought of this, but a lot of what is taught around sales training is what to go say to a customer. And for example, uh, one of the things I see a lot is things like uh, how to develop an elevator pitch, mm. how to put together a presentation, et cetera. And we kind of do it the opposite. I kind of use almost like a counterintuitive approach where I always say, you don't want an elevator pitch. What you want is three or four good elevator questions, right? It's not exactly. what you see the prospect. Exactly. <laughs> it's what you're going to ask the prospect. So some things like that. And uh, another difference might be is when we're talking about sales process, we really help salespeople recognize that the only point we even have a sales process is to help facilitate the customer's buying process. So understanding that and, and working our, with our clients through that process is, is where we should be focused. And so really just some pretty eye-opening things that we work through in our core methodology, and, and people really seem to like it. So what sort of success do you have in getting you know, these sales organizations to adopt and really consistently implement this approach, you know, that it's about the buying process, that it's about the customer, you know, lead with questions. Um, you know, I've, (laughs) 
a formula expression I use it what I call the ask don't tell formula, which is mm-hmm. you know every time you have an opportunity to say something uh, state something as a fact, ask a question instead. Yeah, right. Put a question mark on the end of it, right? And so, <laughs> you know how how you know, how do they? I know they embrace it up front, but are you getting people to sort of continue to use it? Because you know, as I look out on the the sales world, and like you, I'm exposed to you know hundreds of companies all the time and feedback and. You know, on the receiving end of, of sales pitches, I'm sure you are as well as CEO of a company. And yeah, they're certainly not doing what you ex- what you advocate. That's a really good point. And, and I will say that it's, it's a constant battle against ourselves to remain diagnostic and to continue to focus on the customer. Because in the stress and the throes of every day, and, and of course, we're so pressed for time and all, sometimes it's just more expedient. To just show up and, as I like to say, broadcast to your customer, right? Show just up and throw up. up. Show up and throw up. It's more expedient to just get to it. Here's the brochure and here's a proposal, what it would cost you. Give me a call if you want to place an order and you move on to the next one. I just think that it's not very effective. And so you asked, how do you get people to adopt this? And, and I have a – I'll just tell you what I think and how we kind of approach this. I like to show people the folly in – a lot of traditional sales approaches. Because if we can help people recognize that the way I've been doing this for a while isn't necessarily optimum, then I really throw them a curveball with this, some of these concepts that get them to rethink how, how they approach customers and how they approach the whole, the, the whole process of selling. And when that happens, when people kind of change their attitude, their belief set, then their behavior changes automatically. I don't have to tell them what to go do or what to go say. We just work on changing that attitude and that belief structure. And people figure out what to go say. So that's the first piece of it is we're really changing the way they think about sales. But then I got to say the only way to reinforce this stuff is we have to revisit it. I guess it's not unlike – I like to use a lot of sports analogies. not unlike any sports team who goes and wins a championship or has a good season. They still got – they still show up for spring training or or, mini camp or whatever it is to go back and and learn the fundamentals again and be brought back to – the foundation of what it takes to win. And so I think sales professionals ought to approach their craft the same way. And the guys that have been selling 15 or 20 years that come to our workshops consistently say, wow, <laughs> I'm reminded of a lot of stuff here that I've gotten out of the habit of doing. Mm-hmm. Excited to get back to it. So I think you just have to revisit it. I don't know any other way you can make it stick without leveraging every form of technology you can to get pull people back into new different ways of thinking. And so it raises another question, which, which is one I ask a lot of guests, and you know, I've got some opinions about myself. Is is you know, is this something that you people have to do on their own? Mm. This reinforcement, or because too often one of the problems with the training model as it exists currently is, you know, too many salespeople sort of sit around and wait for the company to provide the training. Yeah, and you know, there's things they can be doing proactively. So once somebody's gone through your training, is you know. Is it really up to the individual to go back and keep reinforcing it themselves? Yeah, well, some will. Some of the some of the individuals definitely will if you give them a a way to do that. You, you know, provide a conduit for information, additional content, that kind of thing. They become a sponge for learning. It's funny to me, but it's true that those that are already really doing well are the ones that adopt new ideas and want to try new and different things, probably more than the others that aren't doing so well. So. A lot of those guys are really self-starters, and they will kind of take advantage of any kind of information or knowledge you're willing to pass through. 
But I think for some people that maybe aren't as quite as um, internally motivated by themselves, what I see my clients doing with success is scheduling or creating a, an ongoing curriculum of reinforcement. And one of the things we do is try to, as I alluded to a few minutes ago, leverage a variety of technology to do that. So whether it's online asynchronous e-learning, whether this is web or video conferences, whether this is audio mm-hmm. to listen to while they're driving down the road, I think that personally, I think that's the lost medium when I was uh, learning how to sell, I was playing cassette tapes in my car and listening to, to stuff everywhere I went. And I think we've forgotten that, right? We carry our phone around with us and we could have tons and tons of learning content on there. And when we get in the car, plug that into our stereo instead of the Bee Gees or something <laughs> and learn while you're driving down the road. So we try to mix it up and leverage as many different kind of technologies as we can, bringing information and if ideally, right, to people's uh, you know, smartphones or tablets where they can easily access it any time of day. And we we think that if we keep it in front of people and keep reminding them to go back, that many of them will. And we've had some pretty good success with that. So what are the metrics that, for your methodology, that you give to your clients so they can measure the effectiveness of, of the behavior changes? Mm. Well, there are certainly metrics around who accesses what kinds of information. I don't think that's what you're really asking me, though. Um, no. The metrics that we really have have our clients focus on, there's four, and, and we teach this in our courses, and this is what we do in our consulting engagements as well. These four metrics are number of deals that we do in any time frame, size of deals that we do, or let's say like a, maybe a monthly sales volume or the size of a, of a discrete transaction. Third is the velocity of sales, how fast they move through the pipeline, number of days it takes to close. And then the last is what I call predictability, which speaks to forecast accuracy, win rate, some of those kind of things. But those are the four measures we like to suggest sales teams focus on because when they do, focus on how many deals am I doing, what's, how big are they, how fast are they moving, and how sure am I they're going clo- to close, it pushes them back to use the tools and the content that we teach. So if that's the objective, if you want to grow deal size, for example, we're going to have to employ the techniques of probably meeting more people in the account, cross-selling, upselling, giving away less and negotiations and discounting. A lot of things that we teach in the course then are the ways to achieve a positive movement in one or more of those four metrics. So we like to introduce those when we can, and, and our clients have had really good success tracking the progress on those four, in those four areas over time. So what's one of the key things that you teach that has an impact on the velocity through the pipeline? How fast deals move? Yes, so there are a variety of things that can impact that, but not the least of which is how effective we are at moving sales or, uh, say, opportunities from one stage to the next to the next to the next. And I'll just give you an example here. It's not uncommon to see a salesperson show up to meet with a client and have a productive meeting. Right? The client liked some things. The sales guy felt good about it. And then walk out of the meeting and say, hey, I'll give you a call back. We'll follow up with you. And then you wait a week or so because you don't want to see too desperate. And then you call the guy back and say, Mr. Johnson, please. And the assistant says, I'm sorry, Mr. Johnson's in back-to-back meetings. Can you call a different day? Sure. So the next couple of days later, you call him back and say, Mr. Johnson, please. Well, I'm sorry. He's traveling this week. He's out of town. So he won't be back until next week. Okay. So we call back next week, Mr. Johnson, please. Hey, Mr. Johnson's in back-to-back meetings again because he was out last week. So let's schedule a time for you to talk the following Tuesday. When you talk to him on the following Tuesday, he says, hey, that's great. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks, Bill, for calling back. Let's get let's meet next week. 
And so I, I tell this little story in workshops that I do because if you count along, that was five weeks from yes, the first yeah, initial right, meeting. Right. And so one way to increase the sales velocity is to don't walk out of a meeting without the next meeting book or don't hang up the phone without having the next phone call scheduled. And that's a highly simplistic thing, but wow, do people see an effect in moving things along faster when they simply keep the momentum from step to step to step instead of letting it fall by, I'll see you later, give you a call sometime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's one example that came to mind. <laughs> sure, sure. And what about um, increasing the predictability? And obviously, this would be the, the holy grail for a lot of sales managers. No doubt. Yeah, no doubt. So around predictability, I think it's a, a kind of driven by two factors. One is what you're asking the client, the questions you're asking. So we, I think most salespeople are familiar with the term qualification, but very few really have a, a, an established criteria for qualification. In other words, they don't have a set of 10 things they want to know to determine if the opportunity is qualified or not. Mm-hmm. But if we do, we, let's say we have – we use a little thing we call an opportunity scorecard where we literally s- score a, a, a prospective client in 10 different areas so we can see how strong of an opportunity it is or isn't. So asking the right questions is absolutely key and asking them multiple times throughout a process so we can get a gauge where things are at and if we're still moving forward and if it's just as qualified this week as I thought it was a week and a half ago. But well, the which, is, thing, which is an interesting point, though. I think that too often is, is really missed is that qualification is not a one-time event. Right. <laughs> and then and, uh, you do hear sales managers ask their reps, so is this deal qualified? Yep, good qualified deal. Well, if you haven't talked to them in two and a half weeks, it may not be qualified anymore. Well, it's, on top of which is, is, as I tell people and teach, is that the act of selling to someone mm. changes them. You know, as, they, as they learn more information about what you do, or they learn more about what other people do, requirements change. Yeah, it's not a it's not a static target; it's a moving target. Yeah, and and buying processes usually aren't very linear; they kind of bounce around back and forth, and right. so things can change so much in a couple of weeks' time. To your point, then the second factor, though, for increasing predictability is not only asking the right qualifying questions and having a structured criteria for that, but the second side of it is that you have to ask more than just one guy. Because mm-hmm. it is so easy to meet somebody in an account that you like and they like you and we get along good and we took them to lunch and we're building a relationship and we're really just grooving with this individual. If we don't take it upon ourselves to meet his or her boss and network through the organization, maybe get my manager to talk to their manager and meet with procurement and let me see if I can figure out who the technical approver is. And if I don't really focus on expanding what I call expanding your relationship footprint, then you really don't have a good composite picture on the quality of the opportunity. Right. So as I always say, just don't take any one person's word for it. You know, you got to corroborate the story. So qualify well with the right kinds of questions and then qualify with many different people. And those two things together dramatically increase the accuracy of what we can forecast and what ultimately happens at the end of the month. Well, I think that's the benefit as well as, as I talked about before at the, you know, repeating your qualification because you're going to be able to reinforce in your own mind really how good of a prospect they are the closer you get to the end of it if you keep qualifying them based on what you're understanding what their requirements are. Yeah. You know what I think happens is is that we tend to get happy ears. In other words, we hear some good news and then we don't want to hear anything else, right? What oh, yeah. we hear is one guy likes us and he says, oh, we definitely want to buy from you. And now I'm not, I'm not going to dare talk to anyone else. 
Yeah, don't well, don't don't challenge my worldview, please. Yeah, exactly. I don't dare because I might find out it's not as good as it is. So I always tell people is just don't forget the old adage that bad news early is good news. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Two reasons for that, right? I mean, if I get bad news and I I might determine, hey, this isn't even an opportunity I want to invest any more time in. So that's that's pretty smart, right? Let's yep, get out absolutely. early. I've heard people say we want to lose lose quicker. So that's one thing. But the other reason I think we we need to. Uh, learn more on the front side is that we need to figure out where we stand while there's still time to do something about it. Exactly. <laughs> if there <laughs> is, absolutely. If we've got two or three key stakeholders that just don't really like us all that much and would much rather buy from our competitor, I'd like to find that out 30 days before they're going to buy something than 30 minutes before they're going to buy something. Exactly. Exactly. Well, good. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to take a short break. Back with my guest, Bill Stinnett, and we'll talk more about selling to Big companies and selling to the sea level when we come back. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly a thousand companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service, which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. Welcome back with my guest, Bill Stinnett from Sales Excellence, Inc. And, oh gosh, we were talking about a number of things, but I wanted to get into selling to the C-level. Sure. Because that's one area that you talked about that you, you specialize in. And maybe talk a little bit about the prospecting at the sea level. You'd written an article I'd read about this that uh, described a, a scenario everybody's familiar with. That, you know, sea level people are being inundated with emails and messages, and boy, you certainly see that in some of the cases where sales automation is being applied to to a particular sales effort. So, you know, how do you break through in that type of environment? How do you get your message heard by the people that are going to be the ultimate decision maker? Yeah. Well, I will say this. It's a challenge. It's not easy for any of us. Um, but we have uh, learned a lot over the last uh, 16 years we've been doing this. And, and I tell people I, I have a pretty neat job. I get to fly around the world and talk to great salespeople everywhere I go. So I learn a lot and pick up a lot of ideas. And along with what I learned the hard way in my own career, I've been able to kind of couple that with a lot of this, what we've kind of put together. Um, and and uh, here's what my belief is about this is if we're going to call the executive level, we really have to translate what our products and services do into some kind of a business impact that they can, number one, understand, and number two, care about. Because if we're going to call the executive level and start talking about our products and services and the feeds and speeds and and the, how much faster it is than our competitors and get into the technical details, most of those C-level executives they simply don't understand it. I did a workshop in Chicago a number of years ago, and one of the things we like to do in our course is I like to bring in an executive or two from the company that I'm working with to, to talk with the sales team to let them know what it's kind of like to sit in that seat. So we had the CFO of a, of a technology company come in and, and speak to about 25 of their salespeople that I was working with. And he said, guys, the first thing you want to do if you want to sell to a CFO is you have to dumb it down. Everybody laughed, of course, and he said, no, let me, let me explain why. He said, I, I graduated from Yale with a, my MBA. He said, I'm a pretty educated guy. He said, but, I, but I, what I know is finance. 
and people show up and start talking about technology and they've got all these acronyms and buzzwords and stuff that I don't completely don't understand. And he said, pretty soon I just tune out and start looking for a way to get out of the meeting. He said, but what I do find occasionally, I find a salesperson that comes in and says, hey, we got some technology here. I won't bore, bore you to death with exactly how it works, but here's what happens. We can increase your return on capital. We can reduce your day's sales outstanding. We can help you improve your return on assets and how to convert assets like things like inventory into liquid cash that you can go reinvest at a higher return on investment. If we can translate what we do into terms and into impact that guys at that level care about, then that becomes a, a logical conversation. And that has to precede whatever we do in terms of an approach because there are some creative approaches, and I'm sure you'll get me to mention some here, <laughs> and I'm happy to. There are some creative approaches how to get a hold of these guys, but first step is to have the right thing to say or the right questions to ask before you ever call or reach out. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. No, that, <laughs> I'm sure that uh, you know people out there found that valuable. But I, in addition to which, you got the message. Yeah. Perfect, but you still need to be heard. So you yep. had some just suggestions about how people can break through that that noise, break through maybe the gatekeepers, and get to yeah. the C-level person. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot to be said on this topic, um, but let me just try to capsulize some of it. Um, the first thing is that whatever we're going to send over, and regardless of what medium we use to send that over, we've got to include at least four key things, I think, in every approach, especially at the executive level. Number one is you have to have some frame of reference or some reference point that they can easily recognize. In other words, they need to know why are you calling me? Why are you reaching out to me? We need to provide that reason. Somebody gave me your name. I saw you speak at a conference recently. I read a press release where you were quoted saying something. Uh, I've been working with other people in your organization, including this person and that person, name dropping. Mm -hmm. You have to have some way to let them know that I'm not just calling 300 people at a time because – We've gotten so good at screening things, and especially those executive assistants have gotten so good at screening things that they can tell on a heartbeat whether this is a message that's specific to one guy who you're calling or if it's something you could send to 300 guys. And if it's something you could send to 300, they're probably not going to read it. So that's the first thing is I have to have a point of reference. They know why you're reaching me. Number two is we have to include something we've learned about them. And this is basically the homework that we do, the research that we do, the preparation for the call so that we can prove that I learned something about you. I understand you're expanding your business into a new market this year. You've come out with a new product this year. You're, you've just merged with another company. We have to have some mechanism here to kind of acknowledge or point out that I've done some work, I've learned some things, and as a result, I might be able to help you with this. Mm -hmm. Number three is I always re remind people we have to be able to share how we've helped someone else like them. So this is referenceability, credibility, right? To say that we've been working with other companies such as, and then do a little bit of name dropping or other companies in your industry. Give some examples of your experience with this because the other thing I think they want to know is, has this person ever done this before? Have they ever dealt with somebody at my level? And if they have, then what have they actually helped them to do? So if we've got some metrics or some results that we can talk about how we've helped other clients with, that would be an important piece of this as well. And then number four, in terms of what you want your approach to include, is some sort of a call to action. And that might be, you know, meet with me next week when I'm in town, visit our booth at the trade show, talk with me next Tuesday when I give you a call, et cetera, et cetera. And what we're finding as of late, the best call to action, or one of the best calls to action, 
is to simply ask them to be available at a scheduled time that you will call them. Because we're finding that in today's crazy, hectic world, very few people will call you back if you just send an email or whatever you send to them, leave a voicemail and say, here's my number, call me back. It just doesn't happen. So instead, whether, again, you're sending an email or a letter in the mail or leaving a voicemail, what we find to work best is to say, sorry, I didn't reach you here, but I will call you back Tuesday afternoon at 245. If that time doesn't work, please let your assistant know of a time that works better and we'll reschedule at that time. So those are four things we have to include in our approach. But now I want to say a couple more things, if you don't mind. Sure. Which is we have to get really creative about the mediums of communication that we use. And too many times we get stuck on one of them, right? We kind of sit behind maybe our monitor and just email people. Well, the sad part is that people are just getting deluged and inundated with these emails these days, especially from every kind of salesperson in the world. And because of that, if that's all we use, it's just not enough to get noticed. So uh, what I'd encourage people to do is to weave together several different mediums into a like a series of correspondence, if you will. So I might want to reach out first with a written printed letter that gets sent over in the mail. And people say, God, what? Come on, Bill. Nobody sends a letter anymore. Exactly. So nobody does it anymore. Now that means you're going to stand out, right, by sending the letter. And it's still the best way to introduce yourself. And write in the letter. Let them know what day you're going to call back. So then you were to call into this. You might catch them live. You might not. But on that call, you would say, I'm going to send an email right after this call. So respond to that if you'd prefer, or I'll call you Thursday afternoon at 4.15. And so a series, it's going to be a letter, then a phone call, then an email, then another phone call. Maybe I'll reach out via LinkedIn. Maybe I'm going to uh, send a handwritten note in the mail. And I would encourage salespeople to literally rack their brains for more creative ways to get through to people and then string a bunch of those together and, and pursue it until you get noticed. And I want to give you a first-hand example here that, that I saw about two years ago. I was teaching this concept in a, for a large company in New York City, and a woman was in the back. I had been told that she was uh, one of their senior vice presidents. She oversaw about 10,000 people. And when I was teaching this, this approach, she raised her hand and she said, can I say something? I said, of course, ma'am. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And she said, in my role, you might imagine I get inundated with this stuff. She says, but when I see somebody working this hard, Right? They sent me a letter, they left me a voicemail, they called me back, they sent an email. When I see somebody working this hard to get my attention, she said, I always respond. Now, that doesn't mean I always take a meeting, certainly doesn't mean I always buy anything from him. But when I see somebody doing that level of preparation and that professional approach and they're persistent in that way, I respond to them in some way. Even if it's I'm not the right person to talk to, why don't you talk to this other person instead? And I really liked her, her sharing that with the team because that's what I believe to be true as well. It takes a lot to get noticed these days, and it's going to take more than just one isolated email that's kind of generic in fashion. Does that make some sense? Well, yeah. Well, I think that where perhaps there's some potential problems with that or it becomes problematic is that, you know, hey, we've got all this explosion of sales automation tools that mm-hmm. enable uh, reps to set up or account execs or sales SDRs to set up uh, cadences of, or sequences of contacts mm-hmm. that are fully yep. automated. Now, they don't incorporate sort of the hand, hand-developed hand uh, things like a letter, letter handwritten letter, and so on. <laughs> so they're pretty much dependent on email, voice, and social. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, same token, though, that I guess the question would be is, you know, if you've got everybody sort of using these tools and suddenly – to the example of your senior VP that you gave, 
Mm. Uh, everybody's working hard to get her attention, and she can't yeah. call back everybody. No, that's for sure. Um, but I'm not worried about everybody else, honestly. I just worried about me. <laughs> and so I, if I'm willing to employ all these things and work and do this hard work to get her attention, then I'll do it. I always uh, one I said I like sports analogies, and uh, one of the things that I always tell people like a basketball team, right? Now, every basketball team's got pretty much the same set of plays, right? There's there's no brand new knowledge that's somehow secret what they're doing. They've got the same, you know, they're playing with the same ball, same court, same rules. It comes down to execution, right? A quality of execution. And so many salespeople just don't want to work that hard. But those that do are willing to work that hard. It's amazing how, what a response that you can get. And I guess maybe everybody could start doing that. They just don't. They, they sit behind their, their computer and send emails out and see if anybody calls them back. And so, well, especially too, they're not, they're not including the, the, uh, four elements that you talk about to have in your initial messaging, which is, right. I think, a really important lesson for people to keep in mind, have that point of reference, uh, show that you've learned something about the prospect, Yes. have a referral, and as you said, you know, be specific about a call. I, I never, and haven't for years, and I've, I sold large accounts for a long time, is, yeah, you always, you always sign off with the suggestion of when you're going to get back to them. Yeah. Yeah, it's and, and the things that I see people create, because when we do our prospecting course or our selling the sea level course, which contains prospecting, I always say, Let me show show me what you're using. Show me what you're using for an email template or a letter template or the talking points you use when you leave a voicemail or you get somebody on the phone. And they frequently don't contain those four things. They no. really don't have a great point of reference right. or something we've learned about them or or how we've helped somebody else like them or a good call to action. And to your point, they especially don't seem to recognize the importance of scheduling the next time you're going to reach out. But that simple little technique is so powerful. And you may not get that that individual executive live. You might get the assistant, but that assistant has seen all that correspondence too. And here's one more suggestion I would make. When you get a hold of the executive assistant, sell to that executive assistant or, or present your idea or your value proposition to them just as if you were talking to their boss. Right? Don't have to water it down. Don't assume they're too dumb to understand it. Hit them with the exact same questions or the exact same value proposition you'd, you'd ask the CEO. And they'll probably recognize, if you do it well, that you're worthy of a conversation with that CEO. And, and, and always keep this in mind, too. If the story you're going to tell doesn't impress the assistant, <laughs> it's probably not going to impress no. the executive either. So no, that's they, one way to gauge whether or not you're, you're saying the right things. Right. The ex- assistant is deeply involved, you know, elbows deep in the, the CEO's business or ex- executive's business. They know what they're worried about. They know the things they're working on. So, yeah, to your Absolutely. point, it'll resonate. Okay, Absolutely. so I want to move to the last segment of the show. I've got some questions I ask all my guests. And sure. uh, the first one is a hypothetical scenario I pose to my guests. And this scenario, you, Bill, have just been hired as the new sales leader at a company whose sales have stalled out, to put it uh, generously. And the CEO is looking for you to get things turned around in a hurry. What two things would you do your first week on the job that would have the biggest impact? Mm, that's a great question. What two things would I do? So I've got a team of salespeople, and, and I can ask this team to do some things, can I? I've got sure. the position of authority. You're in charge. <laughs> first thing I would say is let's look at your pipeline and let's get rid of everything that shouldn't belong in there. And the reason I think that's so important is because people will – fill their pipeline up with lukewarm, weak opportunities and think that they're tracking something. Right. And 
we spend and waste so much time on opportunities that aren't opportunities. One of the best piece of advice I ever got from a 40-year veteran of sales, he said, Billy, half of selling is figuring out who ain't going to buy. Exactly. So, that, so that'd be the first thing I do. All right, that's number one. Number two. Yeah. Second thing I would say, let's look at each one that's left in there and let's ask who we know in these accounts. I'm just such a strong believer in that relationship base. And in a lot of cases, deals that we're tracking, we might only know one or maybe two people. And I would say, let's branch out that relationship base in these accounts. Not only is it going to increase the likelihood of winning a deal that's on the table now, but more importantly, when you meet more people in an account, you're going to have a much better opportunity to get involved in the next opportunity that springs its uh, springs up there as well. Okay, good, good answer. All right, so I've got some so rapid fire questions. You can give me one word answers if you want, or elaborate a little bit. Is <laughs> when you're selling, what's your most powerful sales attribute when you bill or selling? Most powerful sales attribute. I mean, yeah. what I do well. Yes. Probably questions. Okay. And questions about two things how the customer is doing what they do now and how they'd imagine doing it in the future if maybe they didn't have the problems they're experiencing right now. Okay. Because those, those two things, where you're at now and where you want to go, really tells me what I need to know so I can position maybe some way to help them. Who's your sales role model? My sales role model? Well, I've been a big fan of some of the, of some of the guys that everybody knows, right? Zig Ziglar and Brian Tracy and these guys, but I got to say that, that my sales role model right now is probably a guy named George Fisher. Mm-hmm. He's a guy that I've known for many years. He uh, oversees a team of about 3,200 sales guys at Verizon. And uh, I've spent a little time with him over the past year. And if I, if I could, I would grow up to be like George Fisher. All right. George Fisher. Excellent. <laughs> so besides any of your own, which one book would you recommend every salesperson read? Oh, thank you for asking. The best book on sales ever written was written in 1949 by a guy named Frank Betcher, B-E-T-T-G-E-R. And the book is called How I Raised Myself from Failure to Success in Selling. And anyone involved in this profession will benefit from reading that book. Okay, that's one that's mentioned a fair amount by guests. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that and Napoleon Hill. Think and Grow Rich. Um, yeah. Amazing how the classics are still at the top of the list. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Never get old. All right, here's here's last question. It's the toughest one of the day. What music's on your playlist right now? Yeah, hey, thanks for asking that too. I I like all kinds of things, but what I've been listening on my playlist lately is Happy by Farrell. Yeah. Off of Despicable Me 2. I just can't seem to get enough of that. I love that. Uh, and uh, some others that I can't remember the names of quite so well, but that's my favorite at the moment. Okay, good answer, <laughs> good answer. So, well, Bill, thanks for being on the show today. Tell folks how they can find out more about you. Oh, gosh, thank you for that. Um, Certainly, if you want to learn any more about us or our company or me individually, come see us at salesexcellence.com, and hopefully there'll be something there that's, uh, that's worth your while. Okay, great. Well, thanks. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. An easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate a part of your daily routine, whether on your commute, in the gym, Or make it a part of your morning sales meeting, because then you'll make sure you don't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Bill Stinnett, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. 
For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com.